for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Welcome here this morning. If you're new, if you've just been coming a little while, it's great to see you. My name's Barney. Um, and yeah, so we, we've got a, a, a fantastic series that we're looking at at the moment, which is about the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you want to find out what the gospel is, you've come on the right week. Um, and we're going to be talking about how the gospel changes us. Because the gospel doesn't just do something to us as individuals, it changes us together. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. So just in starting, I don't suppose, maybe you're like me, have you ever wanted a new identity? Edie, our daughter, she's four, she likes to come up with new names for us all the time. And the other day, she said, this was a great one, she said that I could be called Super Dad, and I loved it. I was, this is a great, this is going to be a great name, yet keep calling me Super Dad. Um, I like it, but to, because to be fair, most of the time I get called something like Dogface. Um, <laughs> you can be Dogface Daddy, and I'll be Edie, and that's what she, she sort of says. So I was pleased that she decided that I, she wanted to call me Super Dad, and I thought I'd take that any day. Um, because to be honest with you, there have been times when I wish I had another name, and I'm really glad my parents aren't here this morning, um, because Barnabas isn't a great name when you're at school, honestly. Like, I was an easy target for abuse from people when I was at school for being called Barnabas. You think Barney was a memorable name, which is true. Most of the time, it is true that most people can remember who I am because of my name. I've only met one other Barney. So I'm quite fortunate in that way. So I went and bought a new phone in town a couple of weeks ago because my one broke. And, um, and the guys in the shop there w- were really interested by my name. And then a couple of days later, I went back because I got some free headphones. And I had to go back and collect them. I was quite excited about this. And I went in. And the guy was like, Barney, you're here. Um, and I was like, you remember my name. Um, and he said, yeah, of course I do. And because my name's memorable. And I quite like that. But it's not always memorable. So... Um, <laughs> Starbucks, I don't know if you remember this a couple of years ago, they introduced this scheme, which is basically, you go in, you go to the guy at the till, and you give them, or the lady at the till, and you, you give them your order, and they take your name. So they take your name, and you give them your name. Um, it got me really hacked off really quickly, because this is what happened. Um, to be honest with you, in, in the whole thing, though, there seems, does seem to be quite something quite good about it. So as a marketing tool, you think, oh, it works really, really well. It really kind of personalises this kind of transaction. Hey, you know my name. You know, and, and it, kind of, it, it makes you kind of feel a little bit more valued. But uh, for me, it didn't work. Because the first time I went in, they thought I was called Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. So Claire was sort of taking the mick out of me for a while. The second time we went in, I was called Brawny. Um, and the person said I was Brawny, which is great. Um, the third time, it was Bobby with an I. Honestly, I kid you not. And the straw that broke the camel's back was when we went to Blue Water shopping one afternoon and they wrote my name down as Bunny. I mean, <laughs> who's called Bunny? Like, literally, like, who is called Bunny? Who's that? That is not a first name. That's like a cartoon character. I, like, how, how? Like, how? So, sorry, I'm still hacked off about it now. So now what I do is I come up with like a, a new identity and, I, and I, when I'm queuing, I kind of, so I give them a name and then I'm queuing and I like to come up with a secret identity for that person, you know, hey, I'm Max, I'm actually kind of a secret agent working at MI5 or I'm Joe, I'm a bin man or, you know, whatever. Like I come up with like a new little identity in my head and I've given them this kind of easy name. So what I've worked out is, and if you ever go to Starbucks and you've got a complicated name like mine, apparently Barney's complicated, go with Joe or Max or Tom or Bob because they always get it right. So it's great. 
But it is fair to say that identity and the issue of identity and who we are as individuals fuels the backdrop and the undercurrent to our culture that we live in today. The rise of the internet and now the ingraining of social media in our society. So it's become like, it's not if you have social media, it's what social media do you have. That's, that's kind of where we're at now. There's been a rise in populist politics across the, across the EU, and there has been that rise. And the developed idea about personalised truth, that is, your truth and my truth can be different to one another, and that doesn't matter. That's okay. As long as you've got your truth and my truth, we can be happy. They're the hallmarks of a society that is supporting and promoting the idea of the individual. I don't know if you saw in the news this week, the creators of Instagram left the company that they had started. They initiated it, interestingly, as a platform for creative people to share pictures and their ideas. So artists would post their new paintings on Instagram or photographers. So I teach photography and art, so I know this. So photographers would post their photographs on there. And what happens is, is that Facebook contacted them and said, we want to buy Instagram. And they said, well, how much? And Facebook said, we'll give you 700 million. And they were like, all right. Um, so they took these 700 million pounds and they said, actually, do you know what? We actually want to keep our jobs as well. So they kept their jobs. They were working for Facebook, the, the founders of Instagram. But they were getting more and more fed up with something. They were getting more and more fed up with the fact that it was just turning into another version of Facebook. And what it was turning into was a, a continual rolling news feed of people showing off how great their lives were with targeted advertising from advertisers to make you want to buy the things that Kim Kardashian is wearing or the things that Selena Gomez is wearing. Okay, so it's like, it's completely changed from what they thought it was. And so they've left because they want to go back and be creative again. What I find really sad is that people adopt an attitude of self-promotion on Instagram and other social media as a way of kind of gaining likes or followers, as a way of gaining approval as a way of feeling approved by others for the life that they're living and the choices that they're supposedly making. And often, when you judge from the photographs that people post, their lives they're living are so satisfied and they're so happy and they're so much better than you or, or I. Um, you look at their lives, they just look so contented. But underneath the surface of all the body positive, self-worth, self-love messages and posts is this deeply ingrained self-loathing. Just delve a little deeper on Instagram. If you just go on it for a little while and look at it, quickly you'll see people attempting to paint a picture of their lives that they're better than everybody else's, when really all it is is a thin veneer that they're able to use to hide the dissatisfaction that they truly feel inside. And it is no wonder to me that the rise of Instagram and Facebook and other forms of social media have led to a massive increase in mental health issues. I don't know whether you saw this story about a doctor from Brazil, and I laughed because his uh, nickname was Dr. Bum Bum. Um, anyway, <laughs> he was giving out dodgy bum implant surgery, and people were going to him for bum enhancements on the cheap. I, this, I kid you not, this is a real thing, if you've not know, you've seen this before. And he was doing a dangerous job, because he was doing it on the cheap. And so somebody, this, this poor, poor girl went to him, and she died, because she got a bum implant, and it killed her. Um, what leads a person to do that? What leads a person to decide that they need a bigger bum? That's, that's what's worth it. It's worth spending all this money, all this time. I just, you know, I just need a bigger bottom. That's, it's, it's ridiculous and tragic at the same time. Who does that? Who does that? Well, I think it's somebody who constantly sees others who think that, and think that they're happier than themselves. They look on social media, they look on Instagram, and they see lives of people, and they want to look like that because they think by looking like that, they'll feel like that. Whilst we're not all tempted by bum implants, I'm sure, 
The truth is we all look at the mirror of our lives and we can be dissatisfied with what we see back in it because it doesn't measure up to some of the lives of the people that we see around us. Society has tried to come up with a fix for that problem. And what they do is, is, is the fix for the, the dissatisfaction that people feel is this message of self-love that you might see around you in the media. So we're encouraged to be true to ourselves, whatever that means. To be happy in our own skin. To celebrate difference. We're encouraged to be like that. We're told we should love ourselves for who we are. And the more self-love that we have, the happier and the more contented we will feel. That's what we're told. The trap is that actually some Christians and some Christian denominations have fallen into is to to support that message of self-love and self-celebration with a biblical truth, and it is a truth, that God is love and that God loves you. They say, carry on loving yourself because God loves you. But whilst it is true, the message is true, God is love and he does love you, it is the equivalent of giving paracetamol to somebody who is dying of a disease. It's not going to do anything to get to the root cause of the problem. You can tell somebody that God loves them and that, that God is love, but actually there is an underlying problem, an underlying cause underneath it all that needs to be solved. And the root cause of this is all tied up with the idea of worship. You see, you were hardwired. You and I were both hardwired by God for worship. That means no matter what you do, you're always worshipping. So the, the question is... isn't if you're worshipping something, it's what you are worshipping. What are you worshipping? What are you worshipping? So much of our society is looking for value. It's looking for meaning. It's looking looking for meaning through the worship of the self. And what we do is we make idols out of those things. We make idols out of beauty and fashion and celebrity in the hope it might satisfy a need that is deep down within us. We worship it. Maybe that's not what you worship. Maybe you worship something else. Maybe it's a career that you've got and everything else goes secondary to that career. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a sport that you do and you worship that thing more than anything else in your life. However, if you look for satisfaction in that one thing alone, you will always feel slightly empty and wanting more. What Adam and Eve engaged with in the Garden of Eden wasn't just doing something they hadn't been told to do. And I think we dumb it down if we talk about it like that, because that isn't actually the root cause of the problem. It's a shallow reflection of what their sin actually was. You see, they were the original, they are the original of us. They were designed for worship. God had made them for a community with himself. He had made them to have a relationship with him. It says in Genesis that he walked in the garden with them. They had this beautiful relationship. Their sin wasn't just to take an apple and eat it from a tree. Their sin was to turn their face from God and giving God worth and in just enjoying him and saying, God, I follow you, it's all about you. Wow, look at what you've made, let's just enjoy it together. Their sin was to turn away from that and start to say, did God really say? Surely if we eat this fruit, we'll be happier. We don't, we don't, we don't need to trust him anymore. We'll be happier if we go our own way. You see, what they did was they placed themselves in their own desires above God. They thought, we don't need God to satisfy us. Look, if we just eat the fruit of this tree, then we'll satisfy ourselves. What they were doing is believing that they were right and that God was wrong. 
that they, they were making themselves more important than God, and they were actively engaged in self-worship. It was the first ever act of idolatry, that is to make something to worship, and they had made an idol of their own selves, of their own thoughts and opinions. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon once said, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. You see, so much of our society is engaged in self-worship, only to find that it doesn't satisfy us. And the irony is, the solution our society presents to this feeling of dissatisfaction is more self-worship. Just love yourself more, they say. No matter what you do with your body, which relationships you pursue, which, what you achieve in your job, what you wear for your latest and greatest Instagram post, like that, the good deeds you do, the nice things you do for others, if you look for self-worth in those things, you will always feel dissatisfied. Always. And here's the truth, and I think we all need to hear this, whether we're Instagrammers or not. God's love for you isn't because he sees something in you that he loves. He doesn't look at you and go, wow, nailed that selfie. Check you out. I'm so proud of you. He doesn't look at the new car you've bought to make yourself look richer than all your neighbours and go, wow, hey, big spender, check you out with your big new car. Because the fact of the matter is, God loves you in spite of who you are and what you do. In spite of yourself. God loves you in spite of yourself. He he loves the most rotten, broken version of you, the version of you that you don't want to show anybody, the version that you would never dare dream to post on Instagram. He loves you when you're that you. Romans says that whilst we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Whilst we were sinners, Jesus died for us. You see, the good news is that Jesus came to save us. He came to save us. He came to save us from something and bring us into something new. He came to save us. He came to rescue us from the idolatry of self. He came to redeem, that is, to to redeem something means to buy it back, to purchase it at a cost. He came to redeem what was broken and lost when Adam and Eve first sinned. God loves you because he chooses to love you, not for anything you were born with or anything you might achieve or have achieved. Because, as the Apostle Paul says, it's all rubbish. He says it's rubbish. All st- anything that I could be or who I am or who I was made to be, it's all rubbish compared to Jesus. It's all rubbish compared to God, to the greatness of God. God loves you because he chooses to love you. When Jesus came, he lived a life that you and I are unable to live. That's what we believe. He lived a life without sin. He lived an, a life without the idolatry of self in a bizarre way. John quotes Jesus as saying this, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Jesus lived a life in full submission to the Father. He lived a life that, that fully pleased God. I know I can't say that. I cannot stand, stand here today. I would be lying to you and said that I have always done everything I've done to please God. I can definitely say with some confidence that I've often done what pleases myself. But I couldn't honestly stand before you and go, I've always done what pleases God. But Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And I know you can't say that either. Paul famously wrote, all have fallen short of the glory of God. When you come to Christ, 
When you say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin, for my failure, for all the times when I placed my things or myself above you. When you say, Jesus, I believe you rose again, you defeated death so I could walk free from a life of idolatry and sin. God does something in you. And this is the good news. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a new identity. There's a story, there's two stories in the Bible that illustrate this point. Matthew 16, Jesus asks one of his disciples, called Simon, he says, Simon, who do you think the Son of Man is? So the Son of Man was a a term that got used for the Jewish Messiah. And they believed, you see, the Jews at the time believed that there was going to be a a man turn up and he was going to help them and and take them out of what was effectively, um, they were being kind of ruled over by the Romans. They believed that they were going to have a Messiah come along and reinstitute a kingdom in Israel. And they believed that a Messiah like David, the King David in the Old Testament, was going to rise up and rise his people uh, in, into a new kind of a new kingdom of, of Judaism. He said, who do you think that the Son of Man is? Who do you think that this, this prophet is, this Messiah who's coming? And Simon says, well, look, some people think it's John the Baptist or Elijah or even Jeremiah. And Jesus says to him, well, okay, who do you think I am then? And he replies, oh, you? You know, Jesus, that's obvious. That's obvious. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God's. You see, in that moment, Simon declares something that he's not declared before. He declares with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. He says, do you know what? Jesus, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the son of the living God. You're not just the son of man. You're the son of the living God. This verbal recognition is the culmination of everything that Simon had seen. He had seen Jesus doing miracles, heard him preach. He had seen it happen around him. And he is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the saviour of the Jewish people and the saviour of the world. This act is Simon's moment, I believe, of salvation. It's the moment he becomes a true follower. What's Jesus' response? Well, he does something quite peculiar, doesn't he? Jesus changes his name. He changes his name. He says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. When Peter admits that Jesus is Lord, Jesus gives him a new identity. He ceases to be Simon, son of Jonah, and he becomes Peter, the rock on which the church is built. Paul had a similar story. Originally, he wasn't called Paul. He was called Saul. He was a Christian murdering Jewish leader going around gathering up Christians and beating them up and stoning them for saying that Jesus was God. He hated Christians, hated them. He wanted to see them die. And when Jesus met him, he gave him a new identity. You see, and he became Paul and he went around the Roman Empire telling everybody that Jesus is Lord. When Jesus meets you, you are given a new identity. When you give him all of yourself, when you give him the good, the bad and the ugly, he gives you a new identity. There's this wonderful line in Isaiah and I I just love it. And it talks about Jesus in Isaiah 61 and it says that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of one of ashes. I look at our culture, what they say is beautiful, what they say is good and lovely and it is a crown of ashes. When you come to Jesus, he will give you a crown of beauty. You see, God takes all of the mess in us, all of the rottenness, all of the rubbish, and he takes it away from you. 
That's what it says that happens when you become a Christian. He takes it away from you and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He has removed our transgressions from us. He takes it away from us as far as the east is from the west and he gives you a new identity. He makes you new. He makes you a son or a daughter. He's the way maker. We sung it earlier. He makes you a son or a daughter. He makes you an heir with him in the kingdom of God. When you become a Christian, you are made an heir with Christ to the kingdom of God. All that you were is now not all that you are. And that's the start of the Christian life. You're free from the need to self-worship. And you're able to worship Jesus. And you're free from the need to worship other things. You don't have to do it anymore. And you're free to worship God. Paul said, no matter what you do, eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. He's saying, look, now you're in Christ, you don't need to worship at the altar of self anymore. You're free to do everything. Not just for your own glory, but God's glory. That means that we can engage with the world, because what I'm not saying today is go away and delete Instagram or Facebook or anything else. We can engage with the world, but we can do it for the glory of God. When Paul writes... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This, there's a word for new here that he used, and it's, it's kainos in Greek. Now, kainos is a type of newness that isn't like a rehashed, restored something, version of something. It isn't a derivative. So yesterday, for example, we bought Edie some new ballet shoes, but they were secondhand. She thinks they're new. They were secondhand, okay? Because they were cheaper. And I'm now a student again, so it's a good idea that they were cheaper. Um, so basically, that word new that we use in English, in that context, she thinks they're new, but they're not, they're secondhand. When Paul uses this word kainos, he's saying it's completely new. It's completely new. It's, it hasn't got another version to it. It isn't a derivative. It's something brand new. It's totally different as well. And often when you see this word appear in the New Testament... It doesn't just describe something new, it describes something superior to what it was before. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, and that new creation is superior to the old creation. Elsewhere, he also, Paul uses this word, kainos, um, for new, to tell you something more about your identity. He writes this to the Ephesians. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new, that's the word there, Kainos, new humanity. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. You see, your identity now as a Christian is that you have been accepted by God and saved by God, loved by God and brought into the family of God. And we are one family together as a church. And this one family speaks something back to our culture. You see, our culture wants us to, be, to celebrate the individual, that's how they believe that diversity will be achieved, is to celebrate the individual. That isn't what God's calling us to. He's not just calling us to individual relationships with himself, but he's drawing a people together from the nations. He says one day every tribe, tongue and nation will confess that Jesus is Lord, because what's happening is he's drawing a people from every people group together. And we are a revelation of the love of God to the world when we meet together on a Sunday. You see, when we come to Christ as individuals, God restores the brokenness in you. God makes you new. And the church is God's restoration of all the nations. It's his rescuing redemption of humanity. In Genesis 11, there's this story. 
And this story is how the languages of the world came to be. The people of the world had a single language and culture. They decided to make a tower that reached to the heavens. And why did they do that? It says in Genesis, let's make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were involved in idolatry of self. Let's make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a tower that reached to the heavens so they could set themselves up as gods on earth. So God did this. He gave them different languages and split them up and sent them out to the nations to divide them. You see, Jesus didn't just come to redeem you, yet he would have died for you. I think we've had this already this morning. If you're the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you. But you're not the only person on earth. Jesus came to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He came to restore what had been broken at the Tower of Babel. We are that people this morning. And when we meet, just in meeting, we are a sign that God is redeeming the nations together. So as a church, we celebrate our diversity because God is doing in something in us. And we proclaim the good news that we're no longer individual slaves to sin, but brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it would be easier if every church community represented one culture. It would just be easier, right? So if everybody in this church was white and getting to middle age and a bloke like me, we'd get on with each other quite well. If they all liked playing computer games in Leicester City, I'd be happy because we'd all get on with each other because we'd all have exactly the same backgrounds, we'd have the same kind of things. It'd be easier, wouldn't it, if your church... Everybody was like you in your church. Wouldn't that make it lovely and wonderful? Boring. Boring. Exactly. It'd be easier, but it wouldn't be what God wants. It wouldn't be what God wants. You see, God doesn't want one ethnicity, one social group. He doesn't want that because it won't work. It doesn't d- display his glory. Look, this picture's already come up. This is a picture by Mark Rothko. I'm an art teacher, as I said earlier on. I mean... I'm going to be honest with you, some art is rubbish, okay? It really is. Like, some art is rubbish. I was looking at a story yesterday on the BBC News website about a couple of artists who have decided to make a fake swimming pool in in an art gallery, and you just think, what are you doing with your life? Anyway, um, this is a picture by Mark Rothko, and it's bland. I'm going to be honest with you, it's bland. You might have got one of these up in your house, fair play to you as an individual. It is subjective, but it's rubbish. Um... I could do that. I'm actually quite good at art, so I could definitely do that. But anybody could do that. You could just go down B&Q and get a black sheet of paper and roll us some red paint on it. Um, At the end of the day, isn't it really just a big blotch of red? No matter what meaning he was trying to put into it, it is just a bit of red. Um, It's so boring. Look at the next one. This is by Vasily Kandinsky. Now, you might not like this as well. I like this. Why do I like it? Because there's so much going on in it. It's about movement and colour. He was expressing how he felt to music that he was listening to. He was really excited by music and he was trying to convey his feelings and express how he felt and he throws in colour and colour and colour and colour and colour and colour. Difference and textures and vibrant kind of ideas in it. I mean, you might like neither and that's absolutely fine. But man, if I had to choose one, I know which one I'd want on my wall at home, it'd be this one. It'd be this one because this represents something more about the world that we live in. See, God doesn't want the church portrayed through one culture, through one people group. Why? Because it wouldn't be the fullness of God's and what he's created in humanity. It wouldn't be a family from every tribe, tongue and nation. A family who celebrates our differences, who rejoice with one another, weep with one another and love one another. 
You see, this family, this diverse family, is a testimony of hope to the individualistic, self-loving, self-serving society that we live in. It's where people can understand real love, real relationships, and real family. And as we worship Jesus together, we proclaim that he is Lord not only of our own lives, but over all our lives together as a community. As we grow, as people come to this church for the first time, there is always a desire to naturally flock towards our own social groups, towards people who have got kids the same age as us, towards our uh, same ethnic or gender groups. We do it naturally. You go out into the coffee area, you're going to be really self-conscious of this. You go out there later on, and we'll all start doing it, because it's natural to do it. Why do we do that? Because it's easier. It is easier. But it's not better. It's not better. There's a challenge here this morning about what I've said to each of us to connect more with people across the church who might look different from us or have different interests to us. And as we do that, it proclaims something back to the world, that we're called out of it, that we're called to be something new, something different. We see, we're called from the nations to be a blessing to the nations. And we do that by being the people of God together. And secondly, and lastly, you might be here this morning and you relate, though, to all the stuff I said about worship and identity. You know, actually, when you look at your life, you're worshipping yourself or something other than God. If that's you, and I'm going to be honest, you need Jesus today. You need Jesus today. You need him. It's only when you, like Peter or Paul, proclaim that Jesus is Lord that you will be free from the dissatisfaction you feel and free to worship him. Paul said this in Romans. He said, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you want to come to Christ, do this. In your heart, you need to be convinced that he rose again from the dead. And with your mouth, you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't believe this morning that God raised Jesus to life from the dead. So maybe there's still some work to do in you today. But maybe, just maybe, today's the day where you know, actually, Jesus did come back to life. And he came back to life because he wanted to show that there's no power of sin or death over me anymore. And if that's you today, maybe you want to proclaim Jesus is Lord for the first time. So we're going to to close today by worshipping together. And I'm just going to let you do that in your own time today as we worship in a minute. Because actually, it's it's about you and a relationship with you before God, first and foremost. If you don't know him, I'm just going to encourage you, as we're singing this song, just to say for the first time, do you know what, I'm going to say it, say it, everybody's singing, it doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord. Proclaim him as Lord over your life this morning. And if you do that, what I'm going to ask you to do is, at the end of the meeting, can you come and talk to me about it? Because I want to talk to you about how I can help you find a relationship with God. Okay? Um, so, Andy and the band, could you come up? Is that all right? Let's just pray as they do that, shall we? Jesus, I just I thank you that you came into the world to redeem us from the fall, to redeem us from idolatry, to redeem us from our brokenness. Jesus, I thank you that you came to save us. Jesus, thank you that this morning we can know your salvation. Whether we've known you 10, 20, 30 years, or whether we want to come to know you for the first time this morning, Jesus, I thank you that today we can know your salvation and we can know new life and a new identity in you, Lord Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, God, that they would just know this week and right now the love of God that surpasses all understanding over them. 
But Lord God, that they might come to know just how great, how wide, how deep and how long is the love of Jesus. Amen.